Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. Jeremiah 17, verse 7, does pronounce a fantastic blessing upon those who place their confidence and trust within the hand of the almighty and tremendously great God of heaven. It's so good for us to be together today, to come together on this beautiful Lord's Day morning, having experienced God's handiwork in the world about us. But for the next few moments, might we look deeply into His handiwork as He's revealed it in the wonderful Word of God. As we come together, and easily on each and every day it would seem, we are well aware that the, our respect for the Word of God must be paramount. It must be so tremendous and so great. For this is the one and only direction, roadmap, if you will, that shall lead us unto heaven everlasting. In Psalm 119, verse 44, do we not read of the greatness of continuance, characteristic of God's Word forever and always? That's such a comfort. For that means that the statements contained in God's Word are as needful and as appropriate for this age as they were a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago even. No wonder we can always look into it and find answers to the difficulties and problems that we so often see in the world about us. Speaking of problems, it is no revelation to any person. If we watch the news, if we open the newspaper, if we look into various magazine articles, we easily appreciate the fact that we live in a world with problems. In fact, the problems, it seems, are so great and so mighty that conventions are held. Individuals meet regularly to try and come up with ways to approach a solution. Worldwide problems ranging everything from disease all the way to difficulties in terms of having food and character of poverty. But there's also a problem with morality. We understand that there are those who seemingly with no thought will take the life of another and to them it's a game, it's a joke. There are others who commit sexual crimes that are in violation of morality and that which is ethically right. And all the while again on many instances it seems that there's so little consciousness of the seriousness of the action. Might I submit to you that no matter what the problem is, all of it ultimately results from some type of sin. When sin entered the world, it changed this world from the pristine and righteous place it was unto a place that does not have that character. Righteousness exalted the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Note the great words of Proverbs 14.34. And in terms of the sadness and tragedy of sin, what about that great text of Jeremiah 3.25? where on that occasion even the prophet lamented the character of sin. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. To say all that is to say that as one contemplates the difficulties and the problems of society, there ultimately is only one answer, and it's to be found somewhere within the revelation of God. As you and I devote our time this morning to thinking about one of the problems with which we in America deal, and other nations as well, let us contemplate that of immodesty. That is to say, again, the issue, the problem, the troubling matter associated with immodesty at least in the mind of some, that problem does not rank nearly as important as some other kinds of problems. 
perhaps that alone is one of the difficulties. Too many are willing to overlook what the scriptures do say about modesty and immodesty. Over the next few moments today, might we together take a journey through the Word of God and listen again to what God has to say about that subject because whatever God has to say is eternally important. To begin that, might I suggest some questions that would be necessary to answer. First, what is modesty? And once we define that, that will easily let us know what immodesty is. How can immodesty be prevented? What does this book say about it? For after all, again, that shall be the final answer once we've ascertained what the God of heaven has revealed on the subject of immodesty. For the first part of our lesson, for the introductory section, let's seek to make those definitions that we just spoke about. How is this to be defined? First, if one were to consult, say, Webster's Dictionary, maybe many of us have some form or type of copy, you'll recognize that modesty itself means to be unassuming, to be reserved, to be decent, to be unpretentious, to be that which is not extreme. If you look at all of those characteristics, those ideas involved in the subject of immodesty, you can easily note then the opposite of what those are concerning modesty would then be that which is immodest, that which would then be assuming, pretentious, not decent, that which would be too to the extreme, and finally that which would be unreserved or not reserved. But might I submit to you that it would be useful to at least know what about that word that's translated modest in the New Testament. What does that word in the Greek mean? That is to say, what would the original hearers of the New Testament, when it was originally revealed and given to those brethren some 20 centuries ago, in what way would they have understood the usage of the word modest? A moment ago, it was read in our hearing by Brother Colonel from 1 Timothy 2 verse 9, and the word modest was in that verse. It spoke about modest apparel, and here's what the meaning of that word is in that original Greek. The word means dress that's characterized by seemliness and respectability. Immediately, one gained an impression like that based on the reading of the verse. And so in the course of the lesson, we would do well to revisit that text and see very carefully what it was that was expressed. But we have a few things to sort out first before we come to that point. We've already gained a sense that God does at least address it in various ways and in certain places in the Bible. We should look at several of them too and gain a feeling for how God approaches this subject. You may well have heard the statement made, and our study recently on Sunday evenings on the interpretation of the Bible is very vital here. For you and I do not know what God has to say on a subject until we know all of what he has said on that subject. So let's look at a few places where immodesty is addressed. We will seek to gain how God responded, what specifically he commanded, and from that to draw conclusions about my life and yours even today. Even at the outset, let us put to rest initially the thought that this might be unimportant. For you see, you notice that the third word in that definition for modesty involved decency. If you do the opposite of that and consider that which is indecent, that is directly related to lasciviousness. 
And we notice that in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, lasciviousness is one of those sins especially mentioned by the God of heaven through his apostle Paul, where he ended by saying that those who are guilty of these shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Hence, this is a very significant topic, isn't it? To be guilty of indecency, to be guilty of lasciviousness, is thus to put one in a position of forfeiting eternal salvation. Immodesty is that important. Let's study it then in detail today. As we begin that study, let us first note what we may be in a position to commonly observe, for this will whet our appetite for what God will have to say about it. To make notes of what you obviously sometimes see is no shocking or surprising thing especially as the warmer season approaches, and especially in light of the way in which society encourages others to dress and to behave and to act, it's not at all unusual to see a man who appears in a public place with no shirt. Perhaps in the outside in his yard he wears no shirt at all, or he wears shorts that are extremely short. Or it is not at all unusual to see a female, a woman, who wears a top that is exceedingly low-cut, so much so that the things that are supposed to be concealed are not. And furthermore, to see other types of clothing in which midsection is exposed. Various types of popular clothing, it seems, almost have that as its goal, doesn't it? Various portions of the human body then set forth for display, if you will, y'all. I've listed some of these on the wall here to my left. You could extend this list considerably. Well, what about those bottoms or those pants that are, again, so short that they, in fact, rise very, very highly? So much so that, again, I didn't advance it, did I? Notice again with me some of the ideas that, as you are able to see, we live in a society where not only does this occur, but you and I are well aware it's encouraged. You see, quite often the popular style of clothing is to wear that which does not conceal, but which reveals. It is supposed to be the thing that's popular, the thing that's in, the thing that's normal. Furthermore, it is to be that which others, in fact, encourage by virtue of friendships and by virtue of even pleasing others. Any way that one looks at this, we might be well aware that that style of clothing, those things, be it swimsuits or regular clothing that is explosive in many ways, it is something that is worthy of our sincere and careful appreciation and thought. One could read many ideas and articles about these. As you see that listing, there are things there that we all need to face and need to be aware of because we simply deal with it so often. We see it in the lives of others, and we're often asked about it maybe. What should our answer be? Certainly as parents and as those who have a disposition of guiding those that are younger, how should we allow our children to dress? And how should we encourage them to always conduct themselves regarding their dress? That, of course, means that we as olders need to ask, well, what way should I dress? Or what way should I, as an older one, set forth an example that would bear the characteristic of godliness and the characteristic of pleasingness to him? 
at the very bottom of that screen, you'll notice that one characteristic and one statement is a certain one. We must not allow society to dictate these principles. For society is under the lordship and leadership of none other than the devil himself. He is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, verse 2. No wonder then James loudly declared, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Or that famous text in 1 John 2, 15 and following, where there the character of the idea is this. The world is set up in contrast to the nature of God's decrees. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Thus, when we seek for a standard to help us determine what would be appropriate attire, appropriate clothes to wear, let us use God's word as the guide, and not the latest sales catalog, not the latest issue or the latest things that are paraded in a television commercial. Let us ask, is this appropriate attire in the eyes of God? In so doing, let us seek to become more specific. What is appropriate attire? What would fall under that category? As we recognize there are some characteristics, some texts in the Bible that address this. And let us begin in the Old Testament. For in the days of the long past, there were matters related to immodesty that God had to address and deal with then. Even though it's true we serve not beneath the law of the Old Testament any longer, nonetheless, the principles that we see would be very useful and valuable for us to study. With that in mind, return with me then to the Old Testament. And let's start in the book of Genesis. In the second chapter of the book of Genesis, the opening book in the Bible, we there remember and so well recollect that God had fashioned Adam, the man. And as created, he was in a state of innocence, purity, sinlessness. And furthermore, recognizing that he was alone, God fashioned a helpmeet, a woman. God brought her unto him. And we notice the very last verse of Genesis chapter 2. The text expressly makes note of this interesting and also very compelling thought. It says, And they were both naked, the man and the woman, and were not ashamed. In our Bible class several months ago now, we studied to some degree the nature of that verse, and we concluded that without sin in the world while they were in that state of innocence, there was no shame associated with the exposure, the displaying of the human body. After all, God fashioned it and made it. And without sin having entered the world, there were no impure thoughts on anyone else's mind in order to make that problematic. However, in the very next chapter, we might well remember what happened once sin did enter the world. In verses 1 to 6 of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as such they violated the will of God. They were guilty of sin. Sin had entered this world... And in verse number 7, what's one of the first things that Adam and Eve understood? Their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. 
one of the first things they understood once they had eaten, partaken of the forbidden fruit was that they were naked. That had never been a problem before, but now it was. The exposure, the displaying of the human body was that which was not appropriate any longer in that sense. So much so that they made themselves aprons. That word in the Hebrew means loincloth or waistcloth. Basically, a small piece of clothing made out of leaves was what they had fashioned for themselves. Again, think about the character of that smallness. Simply a loincloth was all it was. Notice, God was not adequately recognizable of that, uh, of that cloth they had made. Verse 21 says, God made them coats of skins. In the Hebrew, that means a tunic or a long garment. What they previously had been covered with, with their leaves, was not enough. God made them these longer garments, these tunics, these items that would sufficiently cover their exposed bodies. We do learn something mighty from the character of that passage, don't we? God on that occasion fulfilled and answered the problem. He made long garments to cover them sufficiently, to cover them adequately. And as such, we notice that it is not pleasing then to God then nor now to expose and display one's body in such a fashion as would not be pleasing in his sight. But let us look at yet another passage, and when finished, we'll try to pull them all together. In Exodus 20, we remember on this occasion, God expressly gave a commandment to the children of Israel. This particular commandment may have been one that often puzzled us. As we begin reading in Exodus chapter 20, we read about the giving of the Ten Commandments, and with them we're familiar. But we also read about this listing of other laws that God gave, touching everything from neighborly disputes all the way to the character of how one conducts himself in warfare. In the heart of those commandments, we find the closing verse of chapter 20 to rather interestingly state they were not to walk up a set of steps to an altar. Offhand, that may seem so odd until we see the reason given at the end of the verse, that thy nakedness be not determined or discovered thereon. You see, in that day and time, they didn't wear blue jeans like we do. Those hadn't been invented anywhere close to that period in time. What they wore were long robes, if you will, or robes of some fashion or character. Well, here God expressly commanded you are not to walk up a set of steps to come to an altar to offer sacrifice to me. And the reason is that upon those steps, the character of nakedness may well be discovered or exposed. We can imagine what that now may be saying. It would be too easy for others to say, look and to see that which may be revealed by nature of a person standing on steps wearing simply a robe. We're gaining an idea. But notice in chapter 28, here the priests are expressly addressed. They too were not to so behave themselves in attire so that they would expose their nakedness. In Exodus 28, verses 42 and 43, we notice here that specifically the priests were told that they were to wear breeches, as the King James puts it, trousers as you and I would say it today, 
but those would be worn expressly so that the nakedness of those priests would not be exposed as they went about their duties of offering sacrifices. After all, think about what may be involved in, say, the killing of an animal. When the Israelites would bring animals and the priest would have to slit its throat and do the various things commanded to take portions of the meat of the body and sacrifice it, your body might be in various kinds of positions during the course of killing an animal. Those priests were not to wear the robes, you see, to where things could be exposed that should not be seen. They were to wear trousers instead. Isn't it an interesting thing to see how God planned for and expressly commanded relative to this matter of immodesty? To say all that perhaps does ask us to note that in Isaiah 20 verse 4, it is expressly noted that immodesty is disgraceful. It is humiliating. It, is, it should be embarrassing. For you see, in that text, God expressly through the prophet says, in comparison of those that will be judged by him and those even in that day who were not pleasing, he says, they ought to be ashamed as those who are dressed immodestly. We note that comparison. It should be something that is embarrassing to us if you and I are dressed in a way that is not appropriate to God's, to God's sight. But to say all that, we might well ask, does the New Testament say anything about immodesty? We have read a text from 1 Timothy 2. Let's look at that one next, and then perhaps look at one following that one. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, as the Apostle Paul gave inspired instructions to his young son in the faith, Timothy, he did so with an attitude of sustaining and instructing that church in the city of Ephesus. Notice with me that in that chapter, various regulations concerning worship are given. In verse 9, we read then the following, that women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, as was read earlier today. Thus, as we see when a lady approaches worship or comes to an assembly of the church, she ought to be dressed in a way that Paul says would be of modesty, that would be of sobriety and with shamefacedness. Immediately, one might inquire, what do those words mean? We've touched the word modesty earlier, but notice here a more extended Greek definition. That word means respectable, befitting, or seemly. But notice, she is to dress this way with shamefacedness. That's certainly a word that is rather archaic to you and me. We don't use the word shamefacedness much in modern-day English. Here's what that word means. It means modesty. It means propriety. In essence, she is to dress in an appropriate fashion with modesty and also, notice, with sobriety. There's one of those words that means a bit different than what you and I commonly use that word today. When the King James translation was made in the year 1611, the word sobriety meant a bit different than it does today. Typically, you and I think of that as it relates to the intoxication of, of beverages, of alcoholic beverages. However, notice what that word means in the original Greek. It means with good sense, with decency, with good judgment. And thus, we can see that she is to dress herself or have attire that is fitting, and as such, it is to be decent, and is to be done with good sense or that which is appropriate. 
Now, let us be quick to say that the men certainly should understand, in light of what we're going to say in a moment, that they too should dress in an appropriate fashion. But all the while, that discussion has centered expressly upon brethren, let's suppose, when they are assembled or when they meet. We would also like to know, what about tomorrow? In what way should I dress tomorrow? Or Tuesday or Friday? Does the Bible give any principles whereby even that would be something of discussion? Indeed it does. For I would ask you to consider with me some of the general teachings of the Bible on the subject of immodesty. And let us begin by, in, in fact, noticing the following. Let's notice a conclusion at the outset. Wearing immodest clothing is sinful. To wear immodest clothing puts one in a position of the committing of sin. Let's see some passages that illustrate and also conclude that point. Let us begin by noting the text of Matthew 5. What does wearing immodest clothing accomplish? To that one accomplishing it, it may well be perceived as fun, or it may be perceived as appropriate, or it may be perceived as entirely that which draws the attention of others. But partly in that is this. When immodest clothing is worn and that which ought to be concealed is not, then that which occurs is others, the opposite sex, is led into sin. We know that by the following passage. Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, made this observation. And oh, how pertinent. He said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And that was, in fact, one of the Ten Commandments. They understood that statement and that commandment. But our Lord went on to say, But I say unto you, Whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And hence, that person who wears clothing that does not conceal, but rather the private parts of the body are exposed, and others of the opposite sex are led into lust by that, that person has committed adultery with the one already in his heart. Thus, by the statement of Galatians 5.19, one of the sins that will be forever barred from heaven, of course, is adultery. Those that are committing it are committing an act that will bar them from everlasting life. It is no light subject, is it? Those parts of the body, then, that would tend to stir up and inflame the passions of the opposite sex must be concealed. They must be covered. That's the clothing, remember, that God had fashioned even as far back as the Garden of Eden. The fig leaves were insufficient, but long tunics or robes that would conceal the private parts of the body, that is what God fashioned and made. Doesn't this scene remind us of that intriguing scenario in 2 Samuel 11? You remember it with me well. David was walking on the palace roof when he saw Bathsheba bathing washing herself. The propensities and inflamed passions within David led him to this. She called him to the palace. They committed adultery one with another. A child was born to Bathsheba. That child would ultimately die. But in the next chapter, God made this prophetic statement by Nathan to David. He said, The sword shall never depart from your house, David. David would never live down the consequences of that act he committed. Notice that ultimately led him to commit murder as he killed her husband, Uriah. 
all the while we see how did that begin? He saw a woman, and he was not her husband at that time, bathing herself, washing herself, the parts of her body exposed to his vision inside. On that occasion, we begin to see what it is that can occur when immodesty is paraded, when it does, in fact, present itself in public. But that scene by David perhaps calls upon us to note a second point that leads us to see the sin associated with immodesty. I've also listed that it causes others to stumble. Those two are indeed related, but consider this with me. In Luke 17, verse 1, Jesus made this statement. He said, It is impossible but that offenses will come. But woe unto the one through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the depths of the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. We understand the context was our Savior was discussing the pristine privilege that we have of instructing those younger to make a, little, a young one or a little one offend is a terrible thing. Jesus said, I'm telling you, to that one that would make one offend, it were better that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he drowned in the sea. Well, we notice that the Lord made a strong statement, but what about today if you and I so dress in a fashion to cause someone else to sin, that they stumble in their faith, they begin to think thoughts that are impure, have we not been guilty of the same thing as the Lord there condemned? Well, sure we have. So much so that in Romans 14, 13, Paul addressed it rather directly. He said we must never put a stumbling block or an occasion of offense in front of others. That's a pretty resounding statement, isn't it? As compelling as any. You and I then must not so attire ourselves or dress ourselves as to cause someone else by virtue of impure thoughts or actions to stumble. Now, the issue is to ask the clothing. If it exposes the private parts, obviously it's gone too far. That is unacceptable. But what about that which is tantalizingly close? That is to say, one can't say it openly comes out and exposes, but it's close enough to where the mind begins to wonder and it begins to think. By the premises we've just discussed, that too is unacceptable. It causes that which is of stumbling and offenses consider a third text as we look at both of these notice in Philippians 4 8 we have a statement that should be the guiding premise for our thinking in our mind there Paul said brethren think on these things whatsoever is true whatsoever is honest whatsoever is just whatsoever is pure whatsoever is lovely whatsoever is of good report if there be any virtue if there be any praise think on these things. Is it wholesome, true, lovely, pure, just, and honest to encourage in the thinking of others that which leads to lust, that which promotes ungodliness and evil? The answer is self-evident, isn't it? It is that which ought not to happen. And so our attire, our dress, should not be so that it can lead to the impure thoughts or actions or feelings in somebody else. It reminds us, in fact, of that scene in Proverbs 7, verse 10, where there the express statement occurs, the attire of an harlot. What does a prostitute typically wear? What kind of clothing does she wear in order to carry on her business? It's explosive. 
It displays a lot. It conceals little. The whole purpose, you see, is to encourage in the fault and mind of others that which is unwholesome and impure. Certainly no person interested in doing the will of God ought ever to be guilty of wearing the clothing of an harlot. But yet we notice that our world encourages it. Our world wants that exposed and it wants that paraded. You see, it flaunts that which ought to be kept secret. It flaunts that which is not public. Perhaps finally, notice in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, and also chapter 7, in fact that runs on over into the next chapter, but notice verse 20 of chapter 6, the very last verse in that chapter. Paul notes, Ye are bought with a price, therefore ye are not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. To the Christian, Paul said, you are not your own. Your mind and your disposition, your perception should be that which supports the things of God, not the things of the world. So much so that as he turns his attention to married couples, he notes in verses 2 and following of chapter 7, of course, married couples have the precious privilege of God of appreciating that which a sexual and intimate union can bring. In other words, there are things reserved for that that are not to be displayed openly and in public. For a husband and a wife to perceive the character of the nakedness between them, that's one thing. But no other man ought to see her that way. No other person ought to perceive and have lustful thoughts about her in that way. That's for his eyes and his alone. You see, in modesty, God looks upon it very seriously. When you and I then flaunt in public that which is private, we are in fact violating the very sanctity of what marriage has for one of its blessings. Notice again in Hebrews 13:4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. We must then never so conduct ourselves or so live in a fashion or encourage it in the lives of others to uphold immodesty. The world may do so, but we do not. God wishes us to conceal those parts of the body then which are private and to not so wear things that will lead to impure thoughts in the mind and lives of others. We then as men shouldn't go around shirtless in public. We then as women must not wear tops that are too low and thus too, are too often that which leads to thoughts and to wonderings and to minds that are impure in others. Midsection ought not to be shown in public. Shorts ought not be too exceedingly short. Quite often our schools try to put in place policies so that students won't come with shorts that are too short. But may we appreciate they certainly, from that text in Isaiah, and also the one in, in Exodus, there the priests expressly were to cover from hips to, to lower thighs. And so anything that's shorter than that would seem to risk problematic nature. Notice also that as we discuss all of that, what does that say about the modern miniskirt or those things that allow, again, exposure of what ought not be exposed? It simply ought not to be worn. And even swimsuits. Oh, how a situation that one must be extraordinarily cautious and to wear them only in an appropriate and right way. To say all of this has put before us what society doesn't like to hear. 
our fashion designers prefer clothing that's provocative, clothing that in fact stirs the passions because they know that's what sells. But may we as God's people have a different plan in mind, a different situation to attune to. In summary, could we not then say to, to today's lesson that what we wear is important? It makes a statement of our beliefs. Are we more in tune with the world or are we more in tune with God? And what we wear then should be a statement in accord to the godly nature that he's revealed. Modest, absolutely. It should be that which is appropriate, that which is right. It's been well noted by some that what quite often is sold in our department stores for common, ordinary, everyday attire actually has within it less square footage in some instances than what the lingerie a lady might wear to bed when she's with her husband. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Is it the case that we would expect there to be less garments, less square footage of clothing? We need to conceal in public that which ought to be concealed. Today, as we then conclude our lesson and think about the nature of God's word on the subject, be it immodesty or any other, may we rest assured that God's way is the best way, and it's the only way that leads to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Are you a Christian today? Have you placed your faith in the blood-bought nature of the cross and what happened there, the church that the Lord purchased? If you need to respond today in a public way, have you already believed and repented? Then you need to confess the name of the Lord and to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If we could aid you in doing that, it'd be our honor and privilege. If you need to return to your first love, that too can be accomplished with prayer. Today, if we could be of any assistance to you, let us know that even now while together we stand and while we sing.